Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I am the host of the Sendcast. We started this podcast a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. There is lots of stuff to read, but we're all very busy and don't have time to sit and read. Everyone working in schools needs training and support around special educational needs and disability. But the funding isn't there to achieve this. We created the Sendcast to try and help solve that problem, to help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers be teachers of SEND and help support staff be more aware. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, we have a different guest that I have invited on to talk about a specific area. My guest this week again is Finton O'Regan. Finton has been a head teacher, lecturer for Leicester University, and now works as a trainer and consultant for schools and school support systems. In this episode, we're discussing how every school leader is a leader of SEND. Okay, whether they like it or not is a different thing, but how they look at SEND drives how the school looks at SEND. So, the Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared, and over the last 25 years, we have supported schools to support students with SEND. Over the last few years, we have diversified. For years, we focused on assessment, and this will always be our main focus, but we have seen a lack of high-quality, easy-to-access training and CPD for whole school around SEND. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started two years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses, including Finton's training course, by going to the Training for Education website, www.trainingforeducation.com. And at the end of the episode, I will be sharing an exclusive SENDcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get started with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing how every school leader is a leader of SEND. My guest is Finton O'Regan. Finton is a trainer and consultant for schools and school support systems, including social services, health, the police, and foster carers. He has worked with a number of organisations, including NASEN, Institute of Education, Leicester University, the UK ADHD Network, and the European ADHD Alliance. And before this, he was a head teacher of a special school for students with ADHD, ASD, and ODD. Finton is a regular here in our studios. He's recorded a number of episodes of the Sendcast. He's a regular speaker at our virtual Send conferences and has recorded a training course for us around exclusion. Welcome back, Finton. Good afternoon, Dale. Good to be here again in the studio. Excellent. So you gave me a statement for this podcast that every school leader is a leader of SEND. And I thought that really isn't the case. There are some leaders out there who really aren't leaders of SEND. And then I realised that that was kind of the point. If they aren't leading SEND, then the pupils of SEND in that school are going to be really struggling. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, a lot of this is driven um, by a statement that uh, you mentioned NASA, the National Association of Special Educational Needs. And I think, you know, four or five years ago, when we were very much involved in the Every Child Matters agenda, and we were talking about inclusion, I have a particular interest in exclusion and the reasons for that. And it might be a question you might want to ask me later. Just to be um, clear, preventing exclusion. Preventing <laughs> exclusion, exactly. Yeah, preventing and, uh, and providing inclusive practices. 
preventing exclusion. Nason had a sort of battle cry, if you like, and it was to a certain extent aimed at helping Senkos in school who were fighting the corner for children with SEN. They said every teacher is a teacher of SEN, which of course they should be. They're a teacher of pupils, all pupils, you know, who have reading, writing, spelling, and they might be subject specialists in certain areas in secondary school, but they're, they're all teachers of, of children in education. And, and they should all be teachers of children with SEN. But we know that in reality, that's not going to be the case. And there's going to be some teachers who kind of see the, the students that have differences as, as kind of getting in the way of the academic progress of others. And some that say, well, it's not really my job. I didn't come into a school to teach children who have autistic traits or traits of ADHD. You know, that's the SEN's department. And of course, it's not. It's everyone's ever responsibility to teach what's in front of them. But to make that a reality, I think it really does need to come not just from the SEN department, it needs to come from the the top, it needs to come from the head teacher, who ultimately will influence and, and that issue should radiate throughout the school so that's really the point you know it's it's just clarifying that issue that uh, every teacher every head teacher is a leader of the school they're a leader of many things they're a leader of the subject curriculum they're a leader of the health and safety they're the ultimate leader of safeguarding they're the ultimate leader of 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 looking after the premises in 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 some ways even though they might not actually be fixing the boiler although if you're a head teacher you will have to know about boilers i can tell you from experience but they're also a leader of children with SEND and i think your point is that and, and i would agree with you that's not happening in every school no the thing that, le- that leader is really all about and you'll see this in a school a company a family that leader creates the ethos. Very much so. You create the ethos, you create the philosophy, and you know you will, to a certain extent as well, having been a former head teacher, it will influence your selection criteria of who you employ, and to a certain extent, who you keep. And if you're aspiring to be a head teacher, not everyone wants, wants to do that job. But I will tell you, one of the benefits is, is that you do get to, you know, you have a much better choice about the people that you work with if you have that position. You might not have them immediately, but you, you do get the opportunity over the years to, uh, to interview a number of people. And invariably, they will, to a certain extent, fit the criteria that you are directing in terms of philosophy of how you're running your school. I can give you an anecdote that um, when I used to interview staff that I pretty much knew, you know, qualifications were important. Um, obviously, the, the subject expertise is important. But I pretty much knew the first two or three minutes when I was interviewing somebody whether I was going to employ them. Of course, I gave everyone the same courtesy at the same time. You know, you can't just judge that on your instinct. But often I would say in most times out of 10, I knew nine times out of 10, I knew that person pretty early on. In fact, sometimes my secretary would tell me before I even met the person whether I'd like them or not, because she had a chat with them, you know, and she'd got a feeling of, of their, their own philosophy. So the point is that as a leader of, of everything, your approaches to things will colour the nature of the team you're leading, be it in a school or be it in a business or, or be it in any forms of, uh, of role. Teachers are role models for their students. And head teachers and leaders are role models for their teachers. And it's the way it is. So you lead by example, you set the example, your attitude to the building, the people within that 
that will just filter down through the teachers to the children. Yeah, and I think, look, you know, we're not saying that you, you have to be uh, all things to all men, and some schools will be more academic for whatever reason. You know, they will have that. That's their philosophy. Some schools will be more pastoral i suppose it does happen some schools we know that some schools will be more centers of excellence for science or for arts and you know that it will vary i will say something in on a personal level there was the philosophy that the every child matters you know that when inclusion first came in we were were much focusing on the every child matters approach i would say that has somewhat waned in the last few years and you can see that obviously in some of the rates of exclusion for example which unfortunately have been going up uh, 33 percent in permanent exclusions last five years 45 percent in terms of fixed term exclusions. so something's different in the air it's not just the fact that students have changed it must be you would have to argue that some of the the leadership has changed in terms of that approach towards the students who are, you know, in, in those in those areas. Now, this is not the time to discuss that in detail, but what I would say is that the agenda does appear to have changed a bit towards every academic child matters a bit more. And unfortunately, we are hearing things like, you know, no tolerance approach, that the few should not affect the rights of the many. I'm afraid that's been a philosophy that's been banded about now the last two or three years. And it comes from some high places in so much as with people with with responsibilities for, for forming policy and forming forming process. And and that is something that I'm afraid is is seemingly being taken on by some schools more than others. And that obviously is something to talk about, the fact that some leaderships have taken on this approach of no tolerance approach and, and others haven't. And, and I think we all know that that no tolerance approach or isn't something that is viable or will work. And in the end of the day, I think it's something that is, in my opinion, is, is not, not a right approach. So taking on that, the teachers are a role model for their students and head teachers are a role model for the teachers. Those creating the policies are the role models for these leaders. And you've got to make sure, and I think, I um, can't remember who, who said this, but it's one of the problems of the podcasts is we value what we measure. Mm, yeah. So yeah. a lot of this academic excellence is easy to measure. It sounds amazing. It's a quick, easy, tangible way of measuring and creating league tables. And that is what we celebrate. That's what those league tables, that's what local authorities are pressuring we're not really looking at how inclusive, how supportive, the wider range of skills. We're not really looking at that as a country at schools. That's down to, I think, senior leaders in those schools to choose to develop those or focus on those. But the pressure is all about the academic, which has led to that every academic child matters type philosophy. Yeah, and we know that education, it is a little bit of a football. It is, but you know, it, it does go from one end to the other end in terms of political parties who are in charge, you know, they do tend to bring their own philosophies in. We know that, you know, and I would, of course, be batting for the SEN child, wouldn't I? You know, but I, I want to make the point, I say in everything, inclusion is, is, is learning rights for everybody. Everyone has the right to learn. But having a balance is what we need to look for. But the issue of looking at the, you know, the, the PISA tables where we were in, in comparison to other countries, that was very much taken on board by certain government ministers 
ministers for a while to get up to the league tables. And let's face it, people do judge schools where they send students to do with league tables and figures. And, and, and parents are obviously in the market for that as well. So, you know, the parents are looking at that. So you could argue that we've come to this kind of, we want to go to that school because schools are higher and everyone wants their child to do well. But where does it end? I mean, You know, I've been lucky enough to travel a bit throughout the world in terms of education, in terms of presentations and and things. And I've seen I've seen things in those. So, say, for example, take the example of Singapore or China or Shanghai, where it's always when they've got students who are getting 98 or 97 out of 100. And those students are saying they failed because they didn't get 98. I mean, that's how it's that's where it goes. And and also the pressure on students to get sort of nine into the 90, 95s and above has now meant certain individuals who've got 93 and 94, you know, sometimes feeling very disillusioned about themselves. In some extreme cases, the students have, have committed suicide and things like that. So, and what's been interesting is, is that countries and they've been coming back to us and asking us about inclusion and asking us about how we can prevent this, this occurring. I mean, when I used to go over there and sort of like, you know, 10 years ago, they, we had sort of 16-year-olds there who were probably so much more advanced than, than possibly 16-year-olds over here. It, say, for example, we were doing GCSE maths. They might have been doing A-level standard maths and calculus and all that sort of stuff. And and it was like reaching for the stars, if you like. But at, at what cost? You know, what cost in terms of their socialisation skills, in terms of some of the other areas? Not to say that's wrong. I'm just saying... I say at the time, you know, my 16-year-old could not do calculus, and I had a 16-year-old at the time. She could probably do quadratic equations, but also she could tell me the name of Ross's monkey and friends, which, by the way, is, Dale? Um, I knew you were going to bring this up. There's two things you're going to bring up today, and that was one of them, and the other one. Um, I've forgotten it again. Marcel. 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 Obviously, you're far too young. He, he, Dale is, is obviously, he's working far too hard these days. My point is that we want a balance in, in our education, I think. And we obviously do need to be training our children for the future. We've been talking in other podcasts about the issue of neurodiversity, how we're all different and how schools need to be helping individuals. We shouldn't just be teachers. We should be coaches of people. That's what I feel. And and just to make the point about why I'm making this point about leadership, because if I go to a school doing a training session on a, on a wet Tuesday afternoon in you know, in winter, or even better in summer where the sun is shining outside, and I go to school at four o'clock after a long school day, and then you know I, I've got an hour or so with the staff to do something on ASD or ADHD. I watch the staff troop in, especially at secondary school. And you can look at the staff and you can see in their eyes, you know, a third of them are sort of interested to sort of see whether something they might have missed. There's a third of them that really hate me because I'm going to be making excuses for why the student ruined their lesson. There's a third in the middle who haven't quite decided yet. And actually, to be honest with you, I always aim for the third in the middle because I think if I get them, I've got a two thirds and then, you know, and and that's what it occurs to me. In, In every school, you've got kind of, three types. You've got those that do the quirky kids or understand or want to work with them. You've got those that really don't think that that's what they came to school to do or to teach. They came to teach a subject, not teach a, a, a student. And then you've got a third in the middle who haven't quite decided yet. But what will happen is if the senior management team and the leadership of the team is not convinced that they are there for all the students in the school, you will split your staff. And you may only have that one third 
most schools will have, maybe it's not a third, it could be a quarter that aren't. In, but if you are to reach that middle third, you have to have a common front. And it isn't just from the Senko, it's from the whole leadership team radiating down. And the more you radiate that down, the more of that other third you will bring in. And that's been my experience. That's not just getting the head teacher to introduce that speaker for SEND. It's it's more like that head teacher's as someone's telling you something, just is always that person who asks, okay, but what about people with SEND? Correct. It isn't, you know, it's just making sure that that's on the agenda, you know, or or in the thinking uh, and in the the overall philosophy. And as I said, all schools will have different aspects to them. They're different. I mean, we talk about different regions of the country. We're, we're talking of different socioeconomic, which shouldn't make a huge difference, but we, we know that's the reality. We've got different dynamics in, in every community, and it will colour, if you like, the flavour and the philosophy of that school. Having said that, you are a school for students, <laughs> all shapes, all sizes, all colours, all different learning needs. And we also understand that we have children in our school who don't work in the same way and they might be extremely talented individuals and it might not be that sitting in a classroom for six hours a day, five days a week is exactly how they display their talents. And so they have many other talents and we need to be nurturing them as well. It's not just a sort of like a do goody SEN. This is the right thing to do because, you know, all students have qualities, have talents And we need to make sure that we basically are understanding that and nurturing that. And as I said, if someone is different, you know, we need to be trying to understand why they're different and not telling them to be the same like everyone else, because we don't we want people who are different. Obviously, we at B Squared here, we talk to lots of schools around assessment and data, mainly around SEN. And basically what I come across in a number of schools is you have a Senko and then you have the... English lead. What they really mean when they say English lead is, I'm the leader of English for pupils not on the SEM register. I'm the leader of math for children not on the SEM register. I'm the assessment coordinator for children working at age-rated expectations. Yeah. As soon as they're not that, that's the Senko's responsibility. Yeah, I do these, you do them. Uh, Yeah, and you know, and the Senko then is, yeah, left with all the the non-traditional learners. And it's not to say the Senko won't be working more often (laughs) with the non-traditional learners. Actually, the Senko might actually have some ideas that might really help the traditional learners, by the way. But the idea of the Senko, that's your job. You get on with that and let me get on with the others. Well, it's not feasible. And Senkos, everyone goes to them. And, and, you know, and, and we need to be upping our game. You know, we said that all teachers are teachers of SEN, not just the Senko and the Senko team and the TAs. All teachers are teachers of SEN. You're never going to get that unless that message comes down from the top. So what we're basically is emphasising it again. All leaders are also leaders of SEN in their school. And that is what we're trying to say. It's just to sort of like up the philosophy, if you like, and help the Senko. Now, the other idea, I suppose, is that all Senko should be on senior management teams. And, you know, and that's not always going to be feasible for lots of reasons. It tends to happen more so now than it used to. Um, it happens a lot more in primary schools than in, in big secondary schools. But there's got to be a lead on that senior management team that is going to be there for that. That's still not enough to have the deputy head or an assistant head who's, a, you know, who's going to be in that position. It isn't just that person at rate. It's got to be the person above them as well who 
is going to give that example, be that role model, exert that philosophy, and that there is how you will reach that statement. Every teacher being a teacher of SEN, a far more a realistic option than you would otherwise. So imagine, imagine taking that Senko at that school and you're a teacher, mm. asking those leaders for different subjects, do they ever talk to you, do they ever lead or go, what about SEN? And if you're a subject leader, if your leader above you is not asking, what about SEN? If you're the deputy and that person above you, and if you're the head teacher and the governors aren't, it goes all the way up. Because I think leaders, your governors are leaders. Mm. So that ethos has to start all the way at the top. Mm. And that question has to be asked consistently. What about pupils with SEN? How are we supporting everyone? And it, it's not just in um, the structured lesson times. No, it's not. And again, I want to say I apologise for anybody who might feel this is a bit patronising, who is a leader and thinks, well, I do this all the time anyway. What's he talking about? I'm, I'm just trying to get a more a more kind of consistent approach across the school system. And as I said before, I, I can only tell you what I know in terms of how the philosophy has, has changed. And, I, and I'm sure and you might not agree with me on that, but just look at the stats. Or I, I, have to, I have to just, sorry, keep on talking about exclusions as being an example of that. It's only one example. There could be other examples as well. And at the same time, there's been an enormous range of strides and measures in in provision for SEN. And and there's been huge, huge changes in that. And I think we have to make sure we get that across as well as as a balance. But I am worried, but what I see is a a push towards the fact that that the few should not affect the rights of the many. That cannot be right. Because I always make this point, you know, there's, there's always the trickiest child in the class so to speak there always will be and if he or she wasn't there then someone else would be the trickiest child in the class and if he or she wasn't there someone else would be if you kept on going in that sort of direction you'd kind of be left with yourself wouldn't you really i mean that's the only the other end of that other way of looking at it is a few change the world for the many i would love to have that philosophy, as you said, across, you know, that's a, for me, it's a much more effective way of, of looking at it. We need people, we need those individuals who are different because we know that they are the people who do change it for the many. And we, without saying, you know, throwing names at you because everyone claims that this person has this term or has that term, we don't really know about, you know, we weren't doing um, Connor's reports for Leonardo da Vinci when he was uh, when he was operating or for, you know, some of our great composers and artists and, and things like that. But what we do know is that they were different. And, and we also know that a lot of them who came through whatever system they came through, and it will have been different based on the ages, had someone who believed in them. You know, that is the common thread we always have. Whoever makes it in a school who had difficulties will always say there was someone who believed in them. And it could well be it it was, you know, a teacher or a senko or a coach or someone. But sometimes that person had to battle and sometimes it didn't work for them. A lot of layers came on. I mean, I'm I'm forever trying to talk about prevention as opposed to cure and you know and one of the areas we talk a lot about in SEN is is some of the messages that children send by their behavior and and there's terms out there to describe that and some of you will have heard them oppositional defiant disorder I talk about that pathological demand avoids I talk about that as well but essentially those are secondary characteristics of traits of ASD or ADHD that haven't been met and now a child is pushing you away those layers have now built up and now you've got to strip them away 
if you had a philosophy that was more child-centered, more pastoral, more SEN orientated earlier on, I guarantee you that you will have prevented a lot of those secondary measures from taking place. And those other things would not have been as evident. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what I try to do. On a previous podcast, I can't remember the exact figures. So if I do get this wrong, please don't quote me on this. But it's something around that all those exclusions which are happening at the moment is only in around 15% of the schools. So 85% of schools are not doing these exclusions and working really well. But there are 15% who feel that that exclusion is the right way of doing things. And yeah, as we often say, repeating the same action, expecting a different outcome is kind of bonkers. And re- everyone understands that rehabilitation is better than the punishment and things like that. So it's trying to change the course for that young person. Often it's not about looking at how that child should change. It's yeah. often looking at how you as a teacher or that school should change. And thank you, Dale, for mentioning this again. It's because it's a particular interest and a concern. And, and actually, this is what really, you know, I don't sleep at night on. And, and when no one is saying that exclusion shouldn't be a, a, an option for school leadership and to protect the community. And, you know, if there, if there is issues of violence or, or fire setting or drugs or uh, other instances like that, we need to make people safe and secure in a school. Of course we do. That is just absolutely got to happen. But when we get to this fact that the main reason for school exclusion, both permanent and fixed, is something called persistent disruptive behaviour, which is low-level things which invariably builds up. And it is a drip-drip, I get that. But when you are having still numerous fixed-term exclusions to culminate in a, in a permanent exclusion, you've got to be saying, well, is there another approach? Is there another approach? And as you say, it does appear that it's happening in more specific schools than others. And and as there could be other reasons for that as well. But when you do see 85% of schools seemingly dealing with the same type of student issues and 15% seemingly reacting in a different way, it does pose some questions. It does pose some questions which might not just be to do with leadership. It could be a whole range of other things. In most areas, when you start looking at those stats that are so different in across, a, across a range of similar operations, you would generally look at the leadership as a starting point. So there's a lot of talk, new policy, zero tolerance is being talked about a lot on social media, various policies being talked about and behaviour, leaders of excellence, things like that happening. And... For me, it does concern me zero tolerance because that goes completely against the term reasonable adjustment. But then there's the conforming and making moulds. So when we talked about like Singapore and those schools, you're basically trying to create a population which live, drink and breathe the same, which isn't right. But there's also that conforming of the world has rules as a society and you do kind of have to fit into those rules. So, So yes, that kind of you've got to help them understand that the the world runs in this way and you've kind of got to fit in and it's not always easy but we kind of have to but zero tolerance is not the way to get there yeah look when i'm 
training, I usually have a sort of, depending on the school, I usually have a sort of, I, I, I do believe very much in, in rules and rituals and, and, and routines. And in fact, I always say the most important word, you know, in terms of behaviour management is, well, you could say it's like, it's like most important buying a house, location, location, location. It's structure, structure and structure. But with structure, you've got to have flexibility to a certain extent, particularly with some of your more non-traditional neurodiverse individuals. And that doesn't mean that everyone can do the same thing in the same way all the time. You have to have some things that are non-negotiable. I completely would agree with that. And they've got to be things that everyone does, whether you're ADHD, ODD, BBC, MTV or ITV. Everyone has to. But not having a pen is not a crime against humanity if you're a five, 15 year old. Not, you know, not shouting out in class is not a crime against humanity if you don't have the developmental skills of your peers at that same time. Not looking at you when you're speaking is not a crime against humanity. Fiddling if you're bored, you know, in the afternoon when you've been sitting there for three hours, that's really hard for you to sit, is not a crime against humanity. Forgetting, you know, your homework Again, annoying, irritating. I get it. As options for that is not a crime against humanity. Um, one of the ones I've seen is that lining up silently, motionless outside of classrooms. It's in reality between classes. Is that's your kind of your your relaxed time, and you, you can't have you can't have bad behaviour going on, but you can't go from one extreme to the other. One of the reasons that we we try and do this podcast, and one of the reasons that. I think Dale and his team have been working so hard with people. It's to people to understand what SEN means. And, and I understand that there needs to be order, there needs to be structure. You need to have routines in school, such as lining up and everything else. But, but the, what we are trying to get across is that there are some people there who have developmental differences and they won't be spotted because they'll be the same age as their peers. And some people can do things in a different way than others. You know, we know some people are better at maths than others. Some people are better at English than others. We know some people are better at, at running faster than others. But there are some people of the same age who can't do some of the same things as other people can do. And as long as those things aren't, aren't causing that person some hurt and distress, you know, which is part of the non-negotiables, then I just think we should be offering a little bit more flexibility. Some people, you know, need glasses to see. Some people don't. That's flexibility. When I use this structure and flexibility together, people sometimes think it's contradictory. It's really not. It's complementary. It's about saying there's some things that everyone has to do or should do in a, in a community, a group, but there are other things that some people need to be we need to be more flexible about. So to the point about your no tolerance approach just does not work in reality. No. It cannot work in reality because people are different. Even those without a diagnosis, going yeah. back to a mentioned previous yeah. podcast, yeah. I don't like standing still. Yeah. yeah, I will move slightly, especially since yes. I had one of my daughters were born, I started doing the rock. Mm. Yeah. I'm just rocking. I'm not comfortable standing still. When I do my talk, when I get nervous, I jingle coins in my pockets and things like that. So... Movement is quite relaxing. So being told not to do that would just raise my anxiety. Absolutely. And we know that. And I, I'm a big fan of completely getting that across. I spend a lot of my time in training courses saying, uh, you know, fiddling is not a crime against humanity, nor is someone not looking at you doodling while you're speaking. Because if they're listening to you, that's what you want to do, listen to you. Where they look at you, 
and listen to you. That's probably the traditional way. You want to listen to you. That is what you ask them to do. If they're not looking at you and they're listening to you, why would you not allow someone to do that? Yeah. Do a bit of comparison thing. So COVID, hot topic. All businesses, we've all had to work from home. And some companies have transitioned well to working from home. Others kind of struggled and there's uh, some resentment from the staff. For me, B squared is what I do, and we've got a big team. We're well, not a big team, ten of us, but they've all got their jobs, and I can either spend my life micromanaging them, or I can trust them. I, I'm not fussed how that happens at home. The bit I'm after is: are they delivering what I expect when I ask for it? Mm. So, if they, in a classroom experience, if they've got to do this. Does it really quite matter how they get from A to B as long as, as you said, as long as it's not impacting others around them? Mm. So in terms mm. of work is I don't micromanage. I put a lot of trust in my team and they respond to that positively because it means that for, we've got various people who work part time and everyone's had their kids at home. So that's made life quite hard because they're trying to support their children and do the work and do this and do that. And so we've, everyone's just got a bit more flexible, but the results are that work happens, they get that done, they feel happier because they get to the bits they want and it has no real impact. There are other companies who are being very rigid, they are micromanaging and the staff are finding it really stressful because they're trying to have to this way and conform and they're not liking it. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, you know, you could take it into a school staff room. Are all your teachers as a leader the same? No, you've got some who are, who who actually really enjoy, would, would really enjoy working out the timetable. Other people would hate to do the timetable. You've got some people who really enjoy going on the ski trip. Other people don't want to go on the ski trip. You've got some people who are, you know, really good at organising the Christmas party. Other people couldn't organise a Christmas party if you, you know. So you've got a different range of skills amongst your staff. They're the people you work with and you generally arrange manage those people in different positions based on they've got a common set of skills they can all teach a class most of them you'd hope but some of them will have other skill sets outside of that well they're just bigger kids aren't they really and yeah and so every class you have will have a range of people in there who have a different set of criteria so you don't want them all to be the same you no. want them to be different. And, you know, you've got to have certain things that everyone has to conform to. Everyone should turn up on time if you're a member of staff. You've got to get your paperwork in on time. But, you know, certain people will have different lengths of hair. You might not always like the hair they have, or you might not You might not even like, you know, to a certain extent, the jewellery they have, if they're allowed. I don't know. But, you know, what we're saying is that you have members of staff that you have who are different. And, the pupils are different too and you will treat staff differently based on their different needs as a leader you know to a certain extent it, it should go down I think into the, the sort of like the students that you have as well I always like that the teachers are bigger kids and I always like it when um, you know when you get your class and kids go to the back and the naughty ones are at the back and all that and you go where do they get this from and then you do a training session with a group of teachers yeah, yeah, yeah. and a certain group of teachers will go to the back yeah. and you're like Oh, that's where they get it from. The kids are kind of, yeah. it's like a, it's like a, everything, everyone in this building does the same sort of thing. The naughty ones go to the back and disruptive. It, and those it, eager ones yeah, yeah. who generally sit at the front, yeah. and they don't talk to others. They're, they're here to learn and engage. Exactly right. It's like the back of the bus. 
you know, you always got the tough boys or tough girls. They sit at the back of the bus all the way. And it's exactly right, as you say, in a training course, you'll get it. The first people there will will invariably, no one's sitting near the front, apart from, as you can say, that very, very key. It's usually the SEN department. They're all in the front row doing that. At the back of the, the, of the room is those teachers who, for some reason, being at the back means they're not, either they're shown by body language, they're not really interested or they want a quick escape or they want to be on the phones or whatever it is. I also sometimes, what I do is I have the screen at the front, I sometimes start at the back just to sort of like do that or I mix up people's chairs or things like that I did in the old days. But um, now I'll tell you where this comes from. I mean, it came from, um, I was doing a, a talk once and uh, and at school, and it was like a uh, Wednesday, whatever, and a, and a guy came up to me, and he kind of glared at me at the beginning. And in the end, we went through the talk and stuff, and then he said to me, where do you live? And I said, I don't know, he's come around and get me later. And he took me, gave me a lift home. He admitted to me, he said to me, when he first came in, he said, oh, oh I didn't, I wasn't going to, because you were talking about this ADHD, making an excuse for someone. And I said, what do you do? So I'm a, I'm a PE teacher, whatever. He said, they just run around the place. And I said, what do you do? I said, well, I run them around the pitch all the time to wear them all off. I said, does it work? He goes, no, it winds them up each month. I said, well, maybe you shouldn't wind them up so much and get a little bit more control and structure before we start. Anyway, he gave me a lift home in the end. He said, because I was willing to, so he said, but you made me think a bit differently about why the students are doing it that way. And so I don't hate you as much as I thought I was going to. That was the point, really. And it made me smile. So whenever I go into a room now, I try and look for the, the group that I think are the most scared. Because generally speaking, they know there's something different. They don't know why. And part of the issue is they think you're going to make it and you're going to, you're going to excuse them from it. And what I always try and get across, and this is what I say in everything I do, is that everyone owns their behaviour. And, and if you hit someone, you hit them. It wasn't... ASD that hit them or SEN that hit them or your mum and dad are having a bad time at home. You are responsible for what you do. You own what you do. What we're trying to do is help individuals with SEN uh, or have behaviour problems make a different choice. So we're, we're trying to give them a different choice in how to learn maths. We're trying yeah. to give them a different choice in how to react in the situation when they feel anxious or distressed if we have done that then that is what you would call a reasonable adjustment or a reasonable endeavor i think they're calling it these days now then you have done to a certain extent your job but you are open-minded enough to operate in that system but if you have something which is saying that you've got everyone's got to do exactly the same thing in the same way and someone you know who's the leader is saying that's what we want to do then you know you're obviously going to have a, a different outcome in terms of your um, discipline systems and other schools who will probably have a, a more balanced outcome. I'm just picturing it's like a line, it's like a trench here with all those pupils <laughs> with those ADHD traits showing it's all their fault and all those teachers yeah. going, yeah. well, it's all their fault. And basically all what you're trying to do is you're not saying you have to go to there or you have to go to there. You're saying you both need to take a step towards each other. Yeah, yeah, and, and look at where people are coming from. I mean, that's all we're trying to say in all of this. You know, I mean, I think when you talk about let's say autism for example you know that they see the world differently they tend to be quite black and white you know they tend to be very literal and you know they don't like a lot of change so what you do by understanding that is you you, you speak in a different you, you will be more specific about what you ask them to do you know that you know they're not inflexible so you do say it's this or that you know you you let them know in advance there's going to be changes those little changes that you have made because you've got some knowledge about how they see the world will invariably reduce their anxiety will reduce therefore some of the circumstances that you may have had difficulties with them in the past you're not 
having to weigh in and become an ASD expert, you're just understanding that people see the world differently. If I had a one book I would have everyone read in education, and it's not because it's about autism as such, it's it just because it's it's how, you know, it's the curious incident dog in the night time, because it will just help people understand that certain people see the world differently. You know, and once you get that understood, that people see the world differently, it will help you moderate interpret adapt your approach to meet them and that's all we're talking about really we're not talking about everyone become an sen expert it's just that people understanding that some individuals different rhythms of how they learn and behave i think if, if you're that teacher who makes that small adjustment for that child i think generally that child will respond absolutely i use something called sf3r and the s and f are the structure and the flexibility you you know and the three r's are rapport relationships and resilience and I always say to people, but in order for your S and F to work, you've got to get the rapport. You've got to gain their trust. And what will gain their trust are things that you try with them. They might not always work brilliantly, but what will happen is, is that once you have tried something like that, what you will then see is that your S and F will work. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Yep. So years ago, I had a child, for example, who used to shout out in class and he was always shouting out in class and and when I realised that the reason he shouted out was, it wasn't just because he wanted to be first, or he, if he didn't tell me it straight away, he would forget it. If I told him not to shout out at all, he just sat there and did nothing because he wasn't engaged. So in the end, one day I saw him doodling on a post-it note, which was lying on the floor, and it was off my desk. And so I used to let him doodle anyway, but then I decided, because he had traits of, whatever I wasn't sure what it was then but now I think it's probably similar to ADHD so what I did was I allowed him to um, write on these post-it notes and, and instead of shouting out the answer Dale I said well you've got the answer to the question put down the answer on the post-it note when you've got 10 of them come and put it on my table and for the first couple of days this worked really well because he was able to tell me what he knew it was a seat break he got some movement in there and it was really good on a second and third day, it didn't work so well because he was sticking on people's backs saying, kick me, I hate you, you're horrible, things like that. So it didn't work very, it didn't work perfectly. What I'm, what I'm trying to get across is, so that strategy did not work exactly well with him. But once he could see that I was trying to work with him as opposed to against him, I was trying to find a way of getting him to learn the stuff that I had put in previously, the structure and the flexibility started to work better. But it, it came from the trust first that would then fuel the other things. It does work that well. You can't just impose it. You have to nurture it. And to have that time and flexibility to do that as a teacher, that's got to come from your leaders letting you do that and leading you and doing it themselves. Yeah, I think to have the, you know, to be, to be able to do that and to be able to have that uh, freedom, if you like, to try things, to, to try different things, I think does come from leadership. And particularly if you're a more established teacher, you might well have worked those sort of things out. But if you are a new teacher these days, when you're being told to teach in a certain way and, and you've got to follow the behaviour policy to the letter of the law, which is generally speaking these days a little less flexible than it was then obviously you will use the system as it is there for and let's face it the systems we have work pretty well for your traditional learners that's why they work but if they're not working for your non-traditional learner then 
then you you know you you are going to rack up the behaviour points. You are going to rack up the exclusions. You are going to rack up the detentions because there's no flex in that. If the teacher's not got any kind of leadership in order to be more flexible, they'll just follow the system, and, and they won't know any different. So that has to come. That has to come from the leadership. Definitely. So, Finton, thank you for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Finton's given me a number of links uh, from Nason, some books, SND Code of Practice Explained, Successful Mentoring with ADHD, uh, one by somebody called Finton O'Regan, Supporting Behaviour in Classroom. Don't know who Finton O'Regan is. It's a great little book, that. Very powerful. Great Christmas um, stocking filler as well if you're looking for something or a birthday gift. Excellent. So I'll be putting all those links in the show notes and adding Finton's contact details. And you'll find the show notes on our website, www.thesencast.com. Thank you for listening to the show. Please subscribe. You can find links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website. And please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. On Facebook and Instagram, we are just The Sendcast. And if you listen to us through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. Let us know what you think. Or send us a message over social media. Let others know what you think. And before we go, I'd just like to remind you to check out the Training for Education website. You'll find a number of guests on The Sendcast, our speakers at our conferences. Or like Finton, they've also recorded their own training courses. Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to our Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code Sendcast10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.